0: Welcome to ASM Connected, the podcast brought to you by ASM Technologies. Across the series, we chat with guests about all things emerging technology, what innovation means to them, and how organisations can ride the wave as technology continues to disrupt the way we work. In this episode, Ian Tomkinson chats with Bruce Daisley, who is a two-time Sunday Times bestseller with his books, The Joy of Work and Fortitude podcaster and ex-Twitter VP about resilience and happiness at work and how emerging tech and social media impacts workplace culture. Bruce was previously a VP of Emir for Twitter, Managing Director of Twitter UK, Director of YouTube and Display for Google, Digital Advisor to Comic Relief and has held various other roles in technology. Bruce is also a seasoned podcaster with his podcast Eat Sleep Work Repeat.
1: Thanks, Bruce, for joining us today. Much appreciated and great to have you on the, um, on the show. My pleasure. I'm, I'm g- glad to be here. Great. Thanks for taking the time out to join us. So a, a bit of, I suppose, an outline plan for today. Thanks for joining us for the chat. And uh, we're going to cover off a number of topics all around sort of connected to innovation, emerging tech. And then we're going to get into your favorite subject, what makes us happy at work and, and resilience at work as well, which is going to be an interesting subject. Something that I know is very topical. Businesses these days. So, in terms of, I suppose, just easing us into the episode and heading into there, with your background, you've obviously spent a lot of time working for some extremely well-known large corporate businesses, particularly around looking at your your roles within Twitter and uh, YouTube. When I look at other companies such as Facebook and Google, um, they've predominantly bought their scale you know they were very successful at their first find and their first go-to-market plan but they've kind of bought that scale i believe twitter's got a different backstory which i i just wondered if you could for the audience give us a share as that backstory please
2: yeah so look you know the the origin story of twitter is that you know it was it was created by jack dorsey it was sort of generated from the remnants of a podcasting firm they a couple of the A couple of the founders of Twitter had created Blogger and they'd sold it to Google for, I think, $100 million. And so they were thinking, okay, with blogging represented the democratization of one form of publishing. How about podcasting is another? They set up this podcasting platform, very much trying to replicate it. What they discovered was that while it was sort of gradually growing, Apple integrated podcasting into the the iPod technology. When the iPod came about, it's hard to imagine now the, the sort of precursor to the iPhone, but there was no software to put your own music on there. So there were third party softwares. to do that. Uh, so they created that. Overnight, Apple had destroyed their business model. So they set about trying to create a hack week to keep the team busy while they tried to sell the remnants of the company. And the hack week they came up with it was that this way to update your friends by sending a text message to a central website that would then text all of your mates. Uh, so it was like this sort of hub of text messages. So you'd send uh, your text message to a short code. And so Twitter was that, really. So, you know, when it first started, it didn't have a mobile app. In fact, someone else bought it, and, they, and Twitter bought it off them. Uh, it didn't really have a lot of the things that you might associate with it now. So it's just an illustration. that Sometimes the thing that gets you going is just the, the root of a good idea and the ability to develop and adapt it as you go along, really.
1: Yeah, no, that's fascinating because I say, you know, most organizations these days, they have their, I suppose they're a one-hit wonder, they grow, they scale around that technology or or, or that idea, and then they sort of veer acquisition, bolt other bits on. And the fact that, I suppose, uh, they've gone on and actually taken themselves away and said, how do we build the next company? That's quite unique, isn't it? Is that a cultural thing, do you think? Yeah. I mean, you have to say, shout out to Jack Dorsey, because
2: Because after... He he was at Twitter for about three or four years from the start. Then he got fired and he went off and he set up another multi-billion dollar company in the form of Square. It's now called Block. But yeah, so he went off and did it twice. And, you know, if you're ever looking for a billionaire who's done it twice, everyone always thinks Elon Musk runs SpaceX, and Tesla, but he bought Tesla. And I think he he actually bought a lot of the, the, the basis of SpaceX. So albeit that we might associate it with elon musk with doing it twice in fact jack dorsey was the the original
1: yeah and, and elon musk and twitter are, are very entwined at the moment which uh, we'll, we'll come back to mm. a bit later on but yeah there's, a, there's an interesting story there <laughs> one of the things that i was quite interested to sort of understand your take was um i, I saw a keynote that you've done on on YouTube, and you would talk about on youtube about youtube i must get that clear for the audience as well and you, you did basically give them the, these, uh, the audience and it was a live one in person and you give them these foghorns and, and handed them out. And uh, you were looking at the the way that advertising worked within YouTube. It was quite an innovative approach and I, I really got it. And the approach to how YouTube looked at advertising was quite, quite unique, I must admit. You know, the fact that, you know, the user basically... If they don't like the adverts, I think they don't get paid or, or, or it works along that format. Are decisions like that, you know, from your experience, are they data-led or is that create, creativity-led to start off with?
2: Yeah, Skipper Lads on YouTube was, was solving a problem that right at the outset, it's hard to rewind the clock and believe this now, but right at the outset, a lot of advertisers weren't keen to advertise content that wasn't created by established names so you know the advent of youtubers now we see youtubers as you know these people like they, they sort of they have millions of followers they are sort of they're media outlets in their own right that you know some of some media some youtubers do significantly more viewing than the biggest tv shows at the time that wasn't the case and so we needed something that was going to enable advertising to appear against those those bits of content and so we introduced these skippable ads it was a way to sort of democratize advertising really but yeah it was sort of it was uh, it was an attempt at the time to introduce a format of advertising that if the person watching didn't want to watch the ads they didn't and the advertiser didn't get charged for that so it was you know it was an attempt to try and do something a bit fresh and different
1: so so it, it was creativity led then rather than just looking at constant reams of data and, and I suppose the, the data science of modern day, it, it was, let, let's approach it differently. And, and I like the term you used before with, when you were looking at, when you are talking about Twitter and the hack week, you know, is it kind of that culture? You know, is it kind of that sort of idea? Was it looking at that problem and saying, let's solve it? Or, or was there a lot of data churning as well? Yeah, huge amount of data. So effectively, what
2: ad that YouTube chooses to say is based on the anticipated skip rate. And let's work on the basis that three quarters of the ads are skipped. If you get some ads, some ads will be skipped 100% of the time, 99% of the time. Some ads will be skipped 75% of the time. And so if you know that this one's going to be skipped less, then you choose to show it more frequently. And so what happens over time is if you turn up with a very, very, very bad ad, a little shouty, annoying ad, and it gets skipped all of the time, you'll end up paying a higher price. You get allocated something through the through data, you get allocated a quality score which is lower. And so effectively you you're charged more for that.
1: So the the use of people's data and algorithms behind social media and even going into technologies such as facial recognition has come come under a lot of scrutiny of recent everybody's really nervous about it. I suppose the film Social Dilemma, I suppose, shared with everybody that kind of what was going on in the background with some, some of that. Should we be worried about the use of the data and, and what that looks like? Yeah, I think
2: so. Probably, you know, I would say it's probably something that should be uh, regulated by governments, really. In, in truth, where I worked, we both at YouTube and Twitter, we didn't really have a lot of data. You know, we we didn't really have people's real names. We didn't really have what they bought, what they did. So we, we didn't have a lot of data there. But, you know, other platforms, specifically TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, they really did used to have a lot of data it's changed a little on apple phones in the last 6 months to the extent that it's decimated the value of facebook stock because their data has, has been so significant significantly reduced it had a significant footprint before but, and you know the critical thing i think we're learning with regards to a lot of other uses of technology that we probably should regulate the the way that these things have access into what we're doing and and we shouldn't leave it to the whim of billionaires, really.
1: Yeah, I find it interesting when you get elderly gentlemen in uh, the White House uh, grilling the uh, the youngsters and the uh, young billionaires um, and asking them, you know, how they're using the data. And it's just, a, I suppose, a conflict of worlds, really. It is quite amusing to see that.
2: Yeah, but do you mean like a Senate intelligence or the Senate when people like Zuckerberg are having to testify at this yeah. in the Senate? Is that what you mean? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, yeah, when
1: those guys have been having to testify, it's just kind of quite amusing of the analogies that they use to each other and it, it, they just live in different worlds.
2: Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think, you know, anytime any of the tech leaders have to testify in front of those, those committees of congress it's it's never impressive is it so absolutely it gives you an indication that we probably need to do this in a more professional way really
1: yeah absolutely absolutely moving on to i suppose data and and i suppose that you know collection of data data breaches are the ultimate nightmare for i suppose for any company these days and i I, and i guess that, that there's a lot of work and a lot of discussions around data breaches do you think in your mind can organizations be more transparent? about the risks also, and be more proactive when the breaches occur. So generally our philosophy
2: at the company that I worked was that we were, we were fully transparent whenever it happened. And it was at the expense of, of causing, you know, sh- share value volatility. So our philosophy was anytime any breach happened, how quickly can we tell the market? It was basically the chief exec belief that full transparency all the time. And that way you earn trust. And the interesting thing is, is that after one of the breaches, We uh, there was a a brief cycle of of bad coverage, and these were sort of broadly something like after something had been installed, about hundred thousand users' passwords hadn't been stored in a double encrypted environment. It was something like that. There were were brief breaches like that that were hypothetical; they hadn't necessarily happened, but we were informing users and informing the market. And there was a little bit of coverage saying Twitter's outrageous for doing this, and then actually very quickly. A lot of the tech and the cyber security reporters said, "Actually, look, we can't criticise Twitter for being this transparent because if we punish them for being this transparent, then there's no incentive for anyone following this high, rigorous, disciplined code that they do." So, it gives you an indication that you can do these things, even though you will be subject to to criticism for the mistakes that have led into it. Uh, you, you can do something that will, on balance, be better perceived by the market
1: yeah and we've seen a lot of uh, that noise recently with ransomware where you know some companies have rumored to have paid the ransom as such to get their data turned back on uh, and then that clouds with another load of, of sort of uh, lack of transparency and, and, and there's a lot of questions asked around that yeah what would you do though um, oh, me personally, I, I, think, I think you'd have to go out to your, your customer base and say, We've been hit by a ransomware attack. We, we are. I, I don't think you can pay it because if you pay it, you're just encouraging more people to do it, aren't you?
2: I suspect most businesses pay it because the reputational damage that is involved in going out to a full set of customers and telling a full set of customers that you've been humiliated in this way, I suspect most organizations organizations pay it, and they say right now we'll set about never being caught like that again i i'm i'm i strongly believe that's what happened i i was dealing with i, I did some work with the london council that had suffered a ransomware attack and they didn't resolve it in that way but the consequence of it was that they lost access to all of their tenant ledger they lost access to all of their housing register they lost access to all of the information and they Actually, as a consequence of it, they switched to Chromebooks and effectively Google OS operating system to, to avoid future attacks. But it's just an illustration that effectively it's, it's lose-lose, you know, the reputational damage of demonstrating to all of your customer base that you were caught snoozing and you didn't take these things seriously enough. But the amount of times that still now I I see organizations and they've still got some Windows XP setups or they've got dated solutions or we go, I go into a meeting room and something will pop up saying you haven't updated your vi- virus protection and you know it gives you an illustration that the, the these things need to be taken far more seriously i think
1: uh, absolutely and yeah well, you know we, we know that some of the particularly in the public sector they like to sweat the assets so uh, that that tends to have a lot to do with it and it's uh, probably a lack mm. of investment more more than anything Probably education and, and education as well, which is, which is key. Um, and, and I suppose, um, you know, I, I suppose moving on into, uh, I suppose, um, m- more into the sort of cultural side of, of what you do and, uh, and that side. Um, I suppose, uh, you know, companies like Google, Twitter are all highly innovative tech companies. You know, they're, they're there at the forefront, cutting edge, You'd expect them to be. Um, company culture must be a huge part of the success of these businesses. Is it something that can be copied?
2: Yeah, well, firstly, it's really interesting that tech firms are associated with innovation. More often than not, really, I would I would see them from the inside as um, specialists in execution. You know, if you look at Google, while you might frame them as innovative, almost everything that Google has accomplished since it first created Larry Page's reverse search engine, uh, re- reverse um, sort of indexing. Um it, everything it's done since then, it's bought. It bought the way that it monetized that from another company. It bought YouTube from another company, Google Maps, Android phones, self-driving cars. It bought all of them from other companies. Um, it's, it's ad business it bought from other companies. So what it is really is an execution business. And so that's why quite often, you know, the, the one thing that did used to be celebrated all of the time about technology companies, is that they move at an immense speed. I don't think it's necessarily true now. Um, most technology companies are actually fairly slow-moving bureaucracies, but um, but they they very are very clever at styling themselves as an innovative, when most of them aren't in the business of coming up with new ideas. And actually, to some extent, new ideas might be dilutive of the core business that we've got. So um, yeah, it's very clever on that. You know, the, so the critical thing I would say that technology firms need to project. They've got a different culture to the outside world because it's important for attracting top talent. So, you know, the critical thing that technologies need to do is they need to attract new people to come and work all the time. They're often in an expansion, uh, expanding mindset, you know, trying to get more people in. And so, as a result of that, the critical thing for them is being alluring and attractive. So, that what they do is they present their culture as defined to the outside world, you know. So, that might be. Um jelly bean walls, it might be sort of, you know, uh uh beautiful looking campuses, meeting rooms that look like uh, movie sets. And you know, I think these are focus on trying to look different in in whereas in reality they're fairly similar to most jobs that you do you'd have experienced yourself.
1: So yeah, so it's meeting rooms, team calls and, and all the rest. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I suppose. Um, I suppose. I suppose the creativity comes down to that attraction of the that talent. I suppose to a certain degree. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Okay. Interesting. And, and while while we're talking about, um, I, I suppose talent. Um, you know, we're always being told technology is making us workers more productive. Um, but is it making us happier at work? And uh, I suppose another question to flow into that is, and we, within. Employee well-being being central to success at the moment. Um, what can we do to enhance happiness at work? And is there any science behind
2: it? Yeah, I mean, look, you know, the, the really interesting thing is there is a number of things that directly correlate with our happiness at work. Some of them correlate with our happiness full stop. The number one way to be happier at work is to sleep more. And because that's because it correlates with our happiness. Uh, number two way to be happier at work is also a way to be happier in your life, and that's to have happier friends. The more we spend time with happier people, it seems to enhance our own happiness. When it comes to happiness in our jobs, well, actually, the, the probably the next biggest thing is adjacent to the previous one. The biggest predictor of whether you are motivated and driven in your job is whether you have a best friend at work. So that, that affiliation plays a, a really critical part in and our connection to our jobs and and how hard we work. Um, if we feel like we're in an environment where we really like and respect the people we're working with, we're probably more likely to put some incremental effort in. So those things, I think, you know, they can play a part. Um, you you might then go and, and think a little bit further about what are the pillars of good organizational culture. One of them is. Trust, really, and you know that one of the ways you might frame that is that when you've got a trusting environment, people are able to speak up and and give their opinions. You know, I think we've all been part of a project group, whether it was at college, whether it was at work, where we think what this project group is doing is terrible, and you know what happens next um plays a big part in in whether you feel like you're in a trusting environment or an untrusting environment if you feel like you look around and you think my opinion is going to be valued here, then you might speak up. If you feel like if I speak up here, people are just gonna label me as a troublemaker and I'm gonna get ignored. You probably won't speak up. That all of that is sometimes styled psychological safety, our ability to speak candidly to each other without fear of the consequence.
1: Yeah, interesting that I was actually at um, a cybersecurity um, vendors conference a few months ago and there was a professor there and he came up with quite a good um, sort of hack around that because obviously the, within organisations you've got introverts, extroverts, different types. And uh, the way he would try and get everybody engaged to speak up was to separate them into groups, and he would give them a stack of post-it notes. And instead of them having to say in front of everyone what they think, he they could just write on the post-it notes, and then they'd get a team member to put them on the board. So that they didn't have to sort of step up and out, but they could still voice their opinion. I thought that was really kind of really nice and simple, but it would encourage that sort of engagement, which was (laughs) quite good.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Although it's an indication that the culture is probably not necessarily welcoming of uh, of of that sort of input. So, as a coping strategy, it seems like a good one. It's probably a signal that something's wrong, broader wrong. So, you know. You might use that as an interim solution. <clears throat> you know, if you were setting about a change manifesto, you might say, "Okay, um, right. Well, we're going to use this as as a way to elicit some feedback of what's going wrong right now." But long term, you can't use that as the um, as the cultural mechanism because it's effectively saying the only way we can get honesty is here. Is saying to people there's no consequence, and that broadly is a sign then that something's significantly wrong
1: yeah and i suppose people can hide behind it as well and uh, yeah yeah i suppose yeah pros and cons which is great when i get opportunity to uh to speak to, to speak to lots of different people to lots of people it's uh it's always interesting to get that back and i suppose while, yeah. while we're talking on the subject of people you know um, I, I know you wrote a, a, a book recently um book called fortitude um and the term that that's uh i think that's come out of the back of people talking about resilience in the workplace. And I think resilience, um, you know, in technology is increasing, I suppose, comes into that burnout. Everyone's talking about burnout these days and that resilience to that. You know, is the technology that we use kind of responsible sometimes for that burnout? Because we've got hundreds of devices, We've got email on our phones that we're answering at 9 o'clock in the evening. So is technology helping that or is it contributing to that?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's worth looking in aggregate. Most people I speak to now who work in companies never knew an environment without email on mobile phones, and it's about fifteen, sixteen, seventeen years since that really uh, took place. But in that interim, in that sort of sixteen years, um, the average working day increased by two hours a day, and you know, it's and it's worth putting on the record that during the period since the pandemic started, the average working day has increased by an additional 45 minutes a day. So we're in a situation now where, in aggregate, the average working day is about two hours, 45 minutes longer than it was before the start of email on mobile phones. And as a result of that, you might have said, you know, that the old nine to five, nine to six was quite a slug. But now, if we're working three hours longer than that, it's no wonder that people are reporting feeling more burnt out than ever before you know that we're surrounded with work we can't escape work we um we are we're just we're working longer and harder than ever before and so absolutely technology plays a very critical part in what's gone wrong there
1: uh, i suppose uh, that you know uh, coming back into I suppose the social media bit everybody is obsessed with linkedin these days uh, you know uh, making sure that you know they're up to date on you know who's left what businesses who's joining what businesses and uh, do you think that's a bit of a distraction, or do you think it's a you know is it something that that's the way we're going, um, and we've just got to learn to deal with it?
2: I don't see the alternative, frankly. You know, uh, sometimes people say uh, people say, "Oh, is this good? Is this bad?" Okay, it's the reality of where where we are right now, and um, you know, we're we're not going to uninvent the way that technology works. So, the, since time began there's been people who've looked at the, the latest changes and developments and said, okay, well, if we can just uninvent that, then, you know, will we be in a better place? Yeah. It's a charming idea, but I'm not sure where it gets us from where we are right now.
1: Yeah, no, I, I'm always a big believer in looking forward, to, uh, yeah, trying to embrace the new technologies around, hence uh, the career that I've chosen. But yeah, absolutely, there, there will always be those people that look backwards and, and try and change the world. That, uh, doesn't want to change at this particular moment in time. Which is great. And I suppose, um, again, there's something a really interesting topic. I've seen lots of stuff again on LinkedIn about it is that many tech organizations and probably some outside of tech have started to explore four day week. Um, do you think that's a clever PR stunt or are we all missing a trick with that?
2: Right now, um, the four day week is broadly a retention tool. So the, the companies that do it, Are doing it for productivity reasons. They're saying actually, there's something about the never-ending spiral of work that we found ourselves in. It's a bit flabby, you know. Actually, if we if we looked at our working week, would say with the average British person spending more than twenty hours of week a week in meetings, you know. And I think most of us might might be candid and say, you know, most of those meetings over half of the working week in meetings, most of those meetings aren't necessarily uh, the most productive uses of time. So we find ourselves sort of doing a lot of these things that are bad uses of time. And the the challenge for all of us is that, okay, well, what can we do then to make work better? Some, some organisations have said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to reduce the amount of days we work. So we're going to try and get as much done in shorter days. At the moment, um, there's very limited data on it. You know, there's a major project that's going on in the UK that's about 70 firms. And at the halfway stage, half of them reported back and said that it was going well. The other half didn't report back. So we're sort of in a a void. We don't know what's happening there. And, you know, broadly, they said they were getting more done. Um, The one thing we definitely do know that is if your firm goes down to a four-day week, it proves increasingly hard to quit your job. You know, the glory, time off is the new pay. The glory of of not working on a Friday or a Wednesday means that you you know uh, that's that's a big enhancement to your well being that you don't necessarily want to trade off. So the moment the the way that best way we can look at it is that it seems to be life enhancing for the people who do it. Worth saying that I I um, I chat to one Australian firm that introduced a four day week, and they told me one complication of the data the data was that the employees who'd gone down to a four day week half of them didn't tell their partners that'd gone down to a four day week so they were they were leaving the house on friday morning uh sort of waving to their neighbours and heading off uh to then play golf and have a long lunch so um so you know there's there's it's work still to be done there
1: that, that's fascinating that's hilarious as well yeah, yeah that, that, that's brilliant that is um I have not heard that story so yeah it's made me smile that hard. um <laughs> but yeah in terms of that I, I suppose it it's kind of um I, I get the the uh, I suppose the ability to give something back but um I am I'm, I'm just questioning that you know when when the companies do these trials of, of this sort of thing you know Yes, it's going to work well because they're still in the honeymoon period. And because it's a trial, the staff don't want to lose it. So they'll probably up their productivity naturally to try and to make it work. Whereas if you would say, right, that's it, we're changing, then does that productivity start to fall off a cliff?
2: Yeah, exactly that. Yeah, exactly that. And this is why it's sort of, um, this is why it is such a hot topic where currently the debate and the data isn't good enough because, you know, what will happen when firms go fully into this? Will we, will we lose the initial benefit because now it feels now it's every day. I, you know, I think this is the critical thing really.
1: Okay. And uh, I suppose another thing that I always think about is, you know, creativity, you know, it kind of organizations um, is really important. Um, especially, you know, if you're trying to innovate as a team and as a business, Um what, where and what culture do you think perform at our best in?
2: Yeah, um, this is um, this is such a, a big debate, really. You know, um, the, the nature of innovation and, and where ideas come from is such a critical element. I was really struck. I think most of us associate innovation and creativity with being in the same room, and um, I was really struck during the pandemic. I saw JJ Abrams, who's you know, variously along the 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 way, been involved in Star Wars, Star Trek, and and no shortage of huge blockbuster TV shows. And he was said, you know, when the pandemic started, he said, "All right, I'm convinced that that's it. Now we can't make anything for the next, you know, three months, six months, along the pandemic lasts." And what he found was that actually you could, but you had to learn to do it differently. But the benefit he found by doing things remotely, you could get different people in the room who previously, if they weren't in. West Hollywood, uh, you, you couldn't necessarily get them there. So um, I, th- I think it sort of demonstrates that the, the origins of good culture and good innovative culture aren't necessarily what we, aren't necessarily limited to what we see they are. But, you know, we need to, that they, they exist as mental models in our head, I think, that we need to break out of a little. bit.
1: Yeah, and, and I think as well, uh, you know, I think, you know, these days a lot of talk isn't there about, you know, remote work and, and hybrid, uh, and we've all had those conversations to death. And I'm sure you'll probably get that ask that question uh, on a regular basis. Uh, and, and I think, you know, I, I'm a big believer. I can work from anywhere. I'm, I'm used to having to do it, you know, especially pre-COVID, uh, you know, airport lounge, you know, custom premises, wherever I, I'd be, you know, I can get on and do my job. Um, and I suppose sometimes that sort of creativity for me comes <laughs> in, a, in a, you know, it might come in the airport lounge because I'll see something that triggers us or something. Um, is that something that you see on a regular basis when you're speaking to people? Is that, that they're more creative outside of the workplace or, or at their desk? You know, in an office.
2: I loved the idea. I saw um saw another. Uh, movie legend, um, uh, Aaron Sorkin, who's done films like The Moneyball, The Social Network, he did The West Wing TV show. He's done so many thif- different things, famous for very zingy, witty dialogue, banter, and um, and he realized he wasn't having his best ideas at his computer screen. He's having his best ideas in the shower. So he said, and you can, you can check the, the quotes on this, he said, he'd had a shower installed in the corner of his office, and he has six to eight showers a day. So I guess that suggests that our creativity might come when we step away from our spreadsheets and, and, and inbox and we sort of allow our mind to wander a little, I think.
1: Yeah. And, and I do think that sometimes when you, you're you trying to, I suppose, firefighting, as I call it, when you're firefighting in the office and you're in the role, that kind of your brain's in a different gear, isn't it? When, when you switch off a little bit and unwind, the brain does wander. And that's where I think mm. I get most of my ideas in the evening or, or first thing in the morning, which drives um, some of my teams mad because I'll come in, in the morning and go, "Oh, let's try this or do this," and uh, yeah, but but that's uh, that's the way it goes.
2: <laughs> <laughs> exactly that. Ideas will catch you, uh, you know,
1: no matter what the time, you know. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, I, I suppose just uh, as a you know uh, some some wind down, uh, quick fire questions, as we call it. Um, uh, I suppose. Uh, one of the topics that I spend a lot of time speaking about is AI um machine learning as well. Um, is AI good or bad in the workplace? And I suppose are people frightened of it?
2: Yeah, I think we're only just getting the the very sort of start element of it, and I suspect it will ha- it will start having a much bigger, significant uh, impact. You know, one of the ways I think we'll first see AI is. Helping to schedule meetings, you know, at the moment the sort of the pantomime of asking someone, "Can you do this time? Can you do this time?" Sending times over to people is one of the frictions of work. Downside of that, well, actually, one that's one of the things at the moment stops us having even more meetings. So when AI comes in, uh, they'll be finding space for meetings in in gaps that we never believed we even had. Um, And so, you know, I think one of the most interesting, eye-opening. Elements of 2022 has been that anyone who's had an interest in the arrival of AI art tools and, and auto generating art tools can't fail to be dazzled at times with some of what the capability is. And I think it's possibly going to be eye opening on how these things will play a part. You know, in the same way that if you've used DALI or any of these, these tools and you've given a few prompts and you've got something breathtaking back it's not impossible to imagine that uh, you'll be able to say, I need to write a letter to this client. These are the things, these are the bullet points. Please write it. And immediately this letter will be written, possibly in sort of more lucid language than we would have done ourselves. So these things are most definitely coming. I think the the uh, the machine learning art tools demonstrate that actually this might be astonishingly high quality and uh, it could happen sooner than we think.
1: Great. You know, so- yeah, I've not not thought of it in that way. That that definitely are tools are to, to help us and and support rather rather be something frightened of.
2: And um, yeah, well, if you if you look into the areas that are most likely to be um, undermined by AI, uh, law is the number one area um, because so much of law is pattern recognition. It's about you know law is about saying oh right this case precedent on this case precedent on that. At the moment, we use the very fallible system of human memory and you know a lawyer's letter conjuring with some of those things and laying out a case is a very expensive use of human's time you know good lawyers will cost 500 pounds an hour a thousand pounds an hour a partner will cost even more than that and so you know one of the areas that is most likely to be impacted by ai is things like high margin high value but actually fairly repetitive work. And law sits right at the top of that, accountancy sits second. So, you know, I think we're going to see these things encroach into areas that maybe we, ha- we hadn't necessarily considered to be most vulnerable.
1: Okay, cool stuff. Um, What's your favorite tech gadget? Yeah, I mean, I,
2: I, I'm i like constantly, I, you know, I, I love sort of anything to do with um, playing with location really sort of you know anything that's going to enable you to um to use the area around you more or willingly but the thing that i've been uh really enjoying recently is just plant recognition apps and uh if you've played around with these you can hold a plant uh leaf or a tree or something up to your phone and it will it will tell you the app will tell you um which uh, which plant it is? Which you know, if you're either a nature lover and you want to identify what this flowery, or you know, someone who just wants to add a bit of colour to your to your window box or garden, um, they're dazzling. So I love these things. There's a, about three or four on my on my phone.
1: Wow, um, I, I, I tried one once and uh, I, I removed it because it wasn't particularly good. And I, I okay, I, I, I'm one of the I'm one of these people that uh, you know, if, if you give it a if you give the plant a little bit of a tug. If it comes out easily, it's a weed. Apparently, according to my wife, that doesn't work well because I managed to remove some of her favourite plants um, <laughs> by, by using that strategy. But but there we go. And um, such so is life. Well, um, obviously conscious of time, so thank you very much for your, your time today, Bruce. Really interesting chatting. You know, spend uh, hours talking about uh, you know the, the 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 right thing to do uh, in terms of uh, culture and uh, and employee engagement. Um, really interesting topic. Uh, Thanks for your time. Much appreciated. Thanks for joining the show.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of ASM Connected with guest Bruce Daisley. If you've enjoyed this episode, subscribe now to make sure you never miss an update and check out other episodes in the series. To find out more about the team at ASM Technologies, visit asmtech.com. This is ASM Connected.